You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of TaxSmart REI. Today, we're joined with Jason Yorsi, who is an active real estate syndicator with a multifamily investment firm that has acquired 2,000 units since 2016. The firm repositions properties through operational efficiencies, moderate to extensive renovations, and complete rebranding. When he's not doing that, Jason is training others on the success formula to buying apartment buildings at sevenfiguremultifamily.com. In today's episode, we discuss the difference between asset management and property management, and there are distinctions. How to to manage your property managers as an asset manager, KPIs to make sure your property is on track to meet your growth objectives, how to increase NOI, and a lot more. We're going to dive into all of that in just one second after a quick word from Driftwood Capital. Driftwood Capital is a vertically integrated real estate investment firm with a focus on hospitality assets. For more than 25 years, the principals at Driftwood Capital have built deep relationships with brands, lenders, and brokers, unlocking direct access to institutional-grade investments for its network of over 1,500 accredited investors. Driftwood finds deals, completes due diligence, creates the business plan, secures financing, and closes the deal with its own capital. Then Driftwood offers accredited investors the opportunity to invest directly in these deals with a minimum of $50,000, enabling you to create a diverse portfolio that meets your financial goals. It's time to start building your portfolio today. Visit www.driftwoodcapital.com CPA to learn more. Again, that's www.driftwoodcapital.com CPA to learn more. That's all for now. And without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. Hey, Jason, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give an overview of your background and kind of what got you into multifamily real estate investing? Sure. So pretty untraditional route, I would say. Started as a bartender, right? That's where I met my wife. It took her about 10 years to look my way, but I was working in New York City and uh, as a bartender in the early 2000s, right? And that was um, one of the pieces of the puzzle is I was constantly doing service jobs. So I spent time doing that and eventually opened up uh, some bars, opened up a restaurant in New York City, opened and sold a brewery in New York City. And then Hurricane Sandy happened on the East Coast and just, just caused a tremendous amount of damage. Um, my dad has uh, just retired, but for 50 years has done this very unique thing. He's lifted and moved buildings, right? So not something that you do every day, not something that people are like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go move my house, right? So he would do like 12 projects, 10 projects a year, just doing his very neat construction business in New Jersey. All of a sudden, Hurricane Sandy happens, thousands and thousands of calls, right? So overnight, his business explodes. At that time, my brother's working for me. Peely is working with me. We moved to New Jersey, Peely being my girlfriend still at the time, to help dad, right? So we get over there, you know, just, just run the race and, uh, again, doing a service job. And it's not one that we could really maximize and scale. If you think about your house, right, it's a very specialized thing. And just, uh, you know, you're almost a 25-cent fitting from just collapse of anything when you're moving buildings. So it's not easy to put someone in your place. So here we are. 
going from service after service after service, where if you're not showing up, of course, you're not making money. And at this time, Peely's pregnant with our first kiddo. And we just had this thing that we just had to get our time back, right? It was that we got to find a way to get our time back. And the word that keeps coming up is real estate. And with real estate is this ever going thing where, you know, it's just this big blue ocean, right? So we did what we thought was logical. Peely pregnant goes out and gets a real estate license. We start flipping and wholesaling homes. Again, here we are doing construction. Now we're doing all these other activities, right? That are very active, taking our time. And it just kept being this part where we were losing time, going away from the goal. So as that came up, Peely met someone who was investing out of state buying rentals, buying single family rentals. And we said, well, okay, let's try that, right? Because here we are wholesaling, flipping, Airbnb, just all these different activities, which was going fine. However, it wasn't getting us to our overall goal. With that said, we ended up going and doing these rentals and it allowed us to put together a process and a team because we couldn't be in the way. I right? couldn't be a thousand miles away doing these projects. So setting up, of course, construction, rehab, property managers, all these different pieces. And lo and behold, checks start showing up. What didn't occur was that like, the economies of scale just wasn't going to be something that we could tackle, right? So here we are having 10 or 20 or 50 little houses all around the country. It, was just, it just didn't seem logical. So we kept asking that question, what else is there? And that's what led us to large multifamily. We just saw other people doing this just on podcasts just like this. We said, well... How do they do that? Because that seems to be the biggest piece, right? I keep taking it back to restaurants, but basically if you're running a small restaurant or a large restaurant, it's the same thing, but you get the economies of scale, right? Dinner's still two hours long. So if you have a 12-seat restaurant or a 100-seat restaurant, you can only get to serve so many people over that time. So we sold off those little properties, go all in in about 2016, a large multifamily, really just started surrounding our people, really being focused on that niche, just listening to everything that was going to get us the value we wanted, closing our first deal, which was 2017, a 94 unit in Louisville, Kentucky. And that was the first of probably about 25 uh, transactions since for which we uh, have gone full cycle on about 13 of them. We've uh, probably done about 21, 2200 units uh, that we've acquired since then. And so where are you at today, portfolio-wise? We have right now between redevelopment sites, uh, two storage units, and 11 properties that we're currently managing or operating right now under house that the rest of the 11 are multifamily and the others have, uh, have been sold. Amazing. All right. So one thing I want to point out and then a question for you. So we were 30 seconds into your background, which was amazing, by the way. And we already learned the number one lesson is to consistently show up. You heard Jason say it took him 10 years to get, to get in front of his wife. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is tenacity, my man. So it actually is true, man. So you gotta you gotta you gotta take on a lot of bad relationships to get to the right relationship. There you go. That's how many times, but sometimes it takes you longer to learn the lesson. And uh, you know, it took us that time. So she was on her route, I was on my route, you know. So I was in New York Don't City, give she up. Was back to Hawaii. She was back to California, finally found her way back to New York. And uh, it takes time, yes. Tell us about how do you move houses? I've seen houses on flatbed trucks, but I've never really thought, like, how do you actually dig a house out of the ground and move it to another location? And, and maybe why would you do that? So that's literally the most logical question you could ask. Like, why would you move your house, right? Well, it happens a lot for flooding reasons, right? Because ideally, a lot of houses were built in flood zones. And at a certain point, flooding happened that they weren't uh, really thinking about in the past, right? So the government will come in, FEMA will come in and say, hey, uh, the flood line is now higher, right? So your insurance premiums are going to be this amount, go up massively, maybe $1,000, maybe tens of thousands of dollars a year because now you're at risk, right? So people will raise their home 
to hopefully not flood in the future, right? One, it could be a choice, but a lot of this started to be requiring by states and also your city. Like, listen, you have two years to raise your home or we're going to put you in non-compliance. Meaning if you ever want to go out there and renovate your bathroom or do anything else, or even want to sell your house, you're not going to be able to because you're going to be non-compliant. That's one reason. And the other reason could be your house was built incorrectly on the setbacks or your house on a large uh, piece of property, maybe you can move it over to subdivision. You're having foundation issues. Uh, maybe the house is going to uh, be, maybe it was built and now a massive highway has been put in, right in front of you and you have two, three acres behind you, so you'll move it back. But the most logical reason, most um, known reason now is because of flooding. So thousands and thousands of homes, you know, we lifted probably in the time I was there with the business, uh, about 2,000 to 3,000 homes probably in that fact. It was very, uh, very busy. But in that fact, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You know, we did everything from 400 square foot, you know, little shacks to just little mini mansions. I mean, we moved uh, a townhome uh, complex that was 500 tons. So my family was really adapted to what it was. But typically, if you have a foundation under you or you have a crawl space or your basement, that that's going to stay. And either when you raise it up, either get extended or replaced based on if it can take the new load. So steel will get inserted through the foundation. And we're basically going to set up a temporary foundation underneath the property using steel. And that steel is going to be a network. And underneath that network, we're going to put basically little stacks of Jenga blocks in strategic locations within that in those Jenga block setups are going to be jacks and they run on oil pressure. And that oil pressure ties back to a manifold and that manifold can be dictated. So it sets up the amounts of load to allow the house to go up evenly. So if one side of the house is five tons, the other is 20 tons. You can set it up so it all rises up evenly. So that's usually the way you'll do it on a, on a basement or a crawl space. If it's a slab, you are going to leave the floor down and you're going to lift it off the walls. So you have to undo a lot of the first story of the house. That will get lifted up. You'll build in a new wood floor system, building a foundation underneath, and within that, put the house back together. So creates a lot of different things. It's um not ideal for the homeowner. Of course, they don't want this, but they also don't want to flood and have that impact over the future too. That's a lot. You know, and I live in Long Island. I was we were all affected by yeah. Sandy. So definitely you know see, up. we definitely see all the houses you go in Babylon where I where I used to live. It's like you see all the houses raised up on the water because they're scared of flooding and getting their house destroyed. So You're not even required to allow to build like so the township would not give you a permit today if you're not building at least at the at the regulated uh, heights that the state and the township requires because it will say the flood line is X. And then on top of that, the town may be like, well, we need you to build a foot higher. And then the state may, may say we want you to build a state a foot higher than that. And your insurance premiums are dictated by how high you are. So if you're at the level, your insurance may be X, maybe $1,000. But if you build three feet higher, maybe your insurance per year will come back to like $400, $300 for flood insurance. Makes a lot of sense. That's also probably the most complex breakdown I've ever heard or, or like the most <laughs> thorough breakdown I've ever heard about doing something like that. But I know we're here today to talk a little bit about asset management. Before we dive right into that, would you be able to kind of like give maybe, I know economy is a scale, right? Uh, but when you went into the multifamily space, why go with syndication? Like why not use your own capital and just kind of grow from there, you know, the monopoly model per se? Why raise money? Why go into syndication? 
Yeah, great question. So I'll just I'll recap on the house flipping is that I did that conversation so many times because everybody who I have that conversation with is basically hearing for the first time, right? So as you're just in a lot of ways, even like with multifamily syndication, a lot of investors don't even know this is a possibility for them. So you have to make sure that you're not speaking to a point where you're speaking over people. You want to speak to them to see how this can help them, right? So if it can help them, it will. Simply put, syndication was just the thing that was introduced to us. Right. So it was introduced to us, you know, this is how people are buying apartment communities. They're doing this thing called syndication where they're pulling funds from friends and family and investors. So you can all buy these larger properties and benefit from those economies of scale. So that was the reason that we started that direction because ideally that's what we learned. Right. And so that was simply put, this is the process in front of us and made sense. We said, okay, let's go down this journey. That makes a lot of sense. I actually have a kind of a similar story about syndication. We'll save that for another time, but. We have a variety of listeners on the show. Some of them new, some of them seasoned, some of them acquire their own properties, some of them use property managers, some of them invest as limited partners. Could we kind of maybe go through a brief breakdown of like what asset management is compared to maybe mm-hmm. property management? Because I feel like there is some confusion in what each of those means amongst some investors. So uh, sure. maybe it's a great way to start there. So the asset manager is basically performing the tasks and goals of ownership. Now, you may be ownership within yourself, but it's basically a role that looks to meet and be the intermediary between ownership and property management, whereas in the property manager is handling the day-to-day activities, right? So they are dealing with the maintenance calls, dealing with rent collections, dealing with any leases or all the on-site work. The asset manager is working on the performance of the property and making sure that the activities of the current, whether it be just the, the property manager, whether it be any of the construction activities and the financials and anything that needs to be for the lender, they're making sure the in-between between ownership and property management and the property is occurring to a fact that it's meeting the overall performance and goals of the property. Kind of like strategy versus execution operations, right? You've got to have the vision direction, and then you've got to have the person that actually goes and swings the hammer and gets it done. Correct. Yeah, it's the, you're the oversight, but also the key piece to make sure that anything that's not meeting the task is being identified and you're putting in the pivot or the new plan in place to make sure you get back on track to meet where you have to go or change the plan if it's if a course is offline from the direction you want it to be. How do you like manage property managers and set expectations? What, what sure. does that sort of feedback loop look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Where I see the most um, difficulties with property managers is that we have our idea and it's not related to property managers. And then something's happening on the property and it's being you know run in a certain way. And you're like, I don't like anything you're doing, but you've never given them any context of what you actually wanted, right? So it's hard to say, hey, we thought you'd do this, but you didn't give them any ideas. So on the front side, you want to make sure when you're finding a property management company, it's going to meet the type of properties you're after, right? So if you're looking for to you know acquire 100 unit properties, you probably don't want to go with the property manager that just runs single family houses. Same thing, you know, if they're used to just the, you know class A properties and you're looking to go for BC assets, you probably don't want to find that property manager. You want to find the one that's really influenced and really in the right place to have the right part of the team. So I say when we were first starting out, I want someone with at least like three to five 
5,000 units. Because when we come in, I don't want them learning processes on my dollar. I want them to be prepared with the process in place. So when you come in there, we're just part, we're just a little speed bump and they just put us in the process. But we also want to have set guidelines. So we have weekly meetings to actually today, Thursday, we have a number of property manager calls. We'll get on with the property manager. They're going to send us reports in front. We're going to talk collections, leasing, rehab, and any other open items. And that's typically how the call will run. And we'll have that constant communication where we will have these calls each week. Now, if something big comes up or something needs to be, then we will talk within the week. But ideally, we will have that. But before this all happens, where you are, the asset management, the ownership, is you're going to have a plan in place, right? And the part of property manager is you want to make sure that the property manager is in line with this plan, right? Because two parts. Either they don't believe in the plan, right? So they're trying to do something you want, but they don't believe it can happen. And two, the the next part is they might be justified, right? So you want their feedback before you're going and say, hey, let's do this plan. And they're like, well, that plan's not going to work because of X, Y, Z, right? You want that feedback loop so you can make the right adjustment and have the right plan in place. So I'd like to have them up way before we're basically taking this property on the road to going to close because it's very valuable, right? They, They know the market. They're usually very dialed into these markets. They have a lot of exposure to these markets. Markets, so they can tell you what's working from renovations to leasing to any concessions they're seeing in the market to vacancy trends to anything, right? So they can give you that feedback loop, not only on the overall market, but on the neighborhood, the neighborhood. So as you get in there and you start working with them, you have a clear context when you're underwriting your properties to understand exactly where you want to be, because this is something tried and true that they're doing actively on other assets that are comparable properties. Yeah, I mean, you, you said a couple things there that really point to communication and expectations. One, did you or did you actually tell them what you want them to do? But two, yeah. that weekly status meeting, that checkpoint, that one-on-one, or I don't know if it's actually a one-on-one, but my point is, is that anybody listening to this can deploy that kind of good communication system and skills into anything that you're doing, your job, your business. I mean, the, the communications industry agnostic, we struggle with the same thing, right? Like I'll have a manager come up to me and say, oh, my, my staff's not doing this thing. And I'll ask, well, what did you tell them to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't tell them to do the thing. Like, okay, well, we don't have mind readers. Nobody yeah. reads minds, at least to my knowledge. Uh, maybe chat GPT will figure it out at some point. But mm-hmm. until that happens, we have to do, we have to over-communicate set clear expectations. And I like the weekly touch points to get that feedback loop going, understand what's going on on the ground, really understand what's in the trenches. So love that piece. Now, I want to ask about your back office, right? Because we work with syndicates and fund owners. And then we also have like a lot of syndicate and fund owners in our ecosystem that one of the pain points is even with professional property managers, you get the reports, but then you got to consolidate the reports at the asset management level and then distribute to investors. How do you run that process? So that was my biggest, um, we'll say, pain point for growth, right? Is, is in the beginning, it was my wife and myself, you know, we were doing these acquisitions. And you get to a certain point where you are really the thing that's keeping everything from expanding more. So if there was anything I could look back on, it would be bring people on earlier. So right now we have six people on our team. Um, so we have my wife, she does investor education. Uh, my brother, who's actually come more for it, does investor relations. I have Alessandra on with asset management. She also does underwriting at Tori on marketing. I have Bo on office management. I have Brandon on acquisitions, right? So we've been able to facilitate this in the back end where first person I brought on was Alessandra Thompson. She was super valuable because she helped us take some of the items off our plate so we could go identify into the bigger pieces, right? Because as, of course, a growing asset management, you know, we'll say property management, we'll say overall growth of wealth in multifamily, we have to be looking for deals, underwriting deals, and talking to investors. So if I'm doing that, but then still trying to 
find deals, talk to brokers, talk to bankers, do asset management, do the office items, you know, work with tax professionals, doing all these other pieces, right? Something's getting dropped off the plate. And that's where we started to become the roadblock, right? Because if we're running our properties and then at the same time, you know, we're working with asset management, then we can't look for new opportunities. If we're talking to investors, we can't be underwriting deals, right? Because it was just us. So as soon as we started bringing on our team and putting them in positions where they could win, we we're allowed to do more which it continued to allow us to evolve, to be able to meet the bigger picture of where we stand today. So specifically, you know, when say like, I guess like your accounting reporting function, maybe not specifically, but who has that role on your team? Is it like a, a dedicated finance person? Is it like an office manager? Like yeah. who, who owns that responsibility? Uh, we have Bo who's on our team now because we've also taken on property management of about five properties now that are those middle line properties. Where we found here is that growing, we have great property management that we always meet for the larger properties. So 75, 100 units, we usually find the right property management. Where we fell short is consistently finding great property management partners in that middle market. So we started bringing, uh, of course, management in-house for a 36-unit, 29-unit, a small 20-unit motel property, an office building, and storage, right? We started doing that in-house. So both facilitates on that role between both companies for that. Makes sense. Makes sense. So when it comes to KPIs, right? KPIs are always something great to track. I know you mentioned you are on the calls with the property managers. What kind of KPIs do you specifically look at as an indicator, as an asset manager to make sure the property is, you know, performing as expected and is on track to hit the goals that you set out to achieve? It's going to vary based on the business plan, but ideally we do break this out into four buckets, as we said. So it's going to be collections, right? Ideally you can be occupied to 95%, but collecting on 80, right? And there's an issue that you have to align with there. So we're going to look at collections. We're going to look at leasing. We're going to look at the role of our rehabs and making sure that our rehabs are meeting the rent projections that we want, right? Because many times you can go in there and have the idea that you're going to do a certain value add or a certain rehab and not look at the function of that rehab. So we spend 10,000 on a unit, we're getting back 250 on a unit for rent, or we're spending 9,000 on a unit, we're getting back 225, right? So if you look at that, you say, okay, you have to measure how the impact is of your rehab versus on the income you get, because sometimes the extra spend is not gaining you any value. You also have to look at your marketing, right? Where your marketing is aligning in terms of the growth and the number of people that are coming into your property. Also, from the uh, number of applications that are coming on board, biggest piece of that is like you're getting 20 applications, but it's taking you 20 to get one value tenant, right? So one qualified tenant. So if you look at that function, right, that's a one property we have here, great property, but it takes us four to one, right? Four applications to get one one lease. It's better than it was because it started at nine, right? So we took it on, it took us nine to get to one, right? So if you can look at that, how many tenants or how much marketing do we need to get to get that one qualified tenant to come on board? If it is taking that, is it a function that we're at the right market rent today or we had a market rent that's actually too high for the market area? So that we'll look at a lot of different various parts, but it's going to be property to property based on where we are in the business plan. Right. Kind of sounds like you're looking for like almost the customer acquisition, if you will, or tenant acquisition cost. Um, and yeah, 100%. 100%, right? Because you can look, it's, it's speed, and implementation is sometimes more key than the extra $50. Because if you're like, hey, if I can hold out for six weeks, I'll get that extra $50. But then you lose a whole month of rent where you could rent $50 less within a week, right? What's more valuable? Over the overall course, if it's a long-run horizon, it may wait to get that tenant. But if you're looking at a short-term horizon to maximize income, you're losing on a month of income. And by the time you make that up, it's going to take you a year to make up that income because of the lost acquisition. 
that makes a ton of sense there. It's speaking of that kind of leads into my the next question that I had is about NOI, right? So, you know, as an asset manager, you obviously want to maximize the NOI of the property, maximize the resale value when, when it comes time to sell. What kind of strategies or tactics, you know, can you use to improve the NOI of a property, you know, yeah. as an asset manager? So you're a tenant, right? Living on a property, new ownership comes in, what's your worst fear, right? Worst fear, oh, they're going to jack the rent, right? That's your worst fear. However, if you can come in and make this a better property to live and do things that don't immediately affect the tenant, that's ultimately going to be something that's going to allow you to keep those tenants, potentially push them up to market through lease renewals, which also saves you on the heavy CapEx play in the back end that can be very beneficial to NOI. So an example of this is that, say it's a, you know, it's a master paid utility property, right? You come in there. Now you could do two things, right? Maybe you could push to have some kind of build back for utilities. But in the meantime, you can curb anything that's going to cut down on your water bill, right? So it could be active leaks where it's just been poured, you know, deferred maintenance left by the other property. Maybe you can go in there and change up toilets or, you know, shower heads or other things that can reduce your water bill, right? So maybe you can have an impact in a Y, a couple hundred thousand, just on an effect here that's making the property manage more efficiently. So on the front end here, if you can go in and set up the curb appeal, right? To maximize on this point, it's a short-term, sometimes hard to see value add, but allows you to get the bigger value add in the, in the end. Because our mind is set up that the first thing we see is going to dictate our response. So I can make the best unit in the world in the unit. But if you roll up in the parking lot, it's got potholes in it. You know, your your almost tire falls off. It's a landscaping's horrible. Signage is horrible. It's got like gunshots through it. You name it, right? By the time you get in the unit, your mind's already set up that this is not a great place to live. But if you can set up the curb appeal, uh, fix up the hallways, do things to make it a more attractive place, it also shows the current tenants that you're there to make this place better. So it allows you to sometimes save on those costs that are hidden, right? Especially if you're going to spend $10,000 a unit. If you can keep that tenant and roll that tenant up, maybe in two six-month leases to get closer to that market rent and save on that hit, sometimes that can be a massive effect to the NOI without really affecting the tenant. And then we can go forward and say, hey, listen, we've improved this property. So we are going to have to do these rent increases, right? So here's our option, right? We've done these renovated units. You can move into this renovated unit for this cost, right? You could stay in your existing unit. We're going to have these uh, curse uh, renewals. So at this point, it will be this part. Or unfortunately, they can move, right? And so that's usually the path we can go to have little impact in the beginning on the tenants, show them, right, that we are going to have the most impact on the property, but then gain the most value to our bottom line. Makes a lot of sense. You know, this is really interesting. This kind of reminds me of a property we I did back in 2017. And we had to do all of the stuff you just mentioned, curb appeal, make sure that looked good. And you know, what's really funny. We actually leveraged the property management uh, company a lot. They came with us through the acquisition, mm-hmm. made sure all our plans were sound because there's a lot of stuff we wanted to do to the property that would not increase the NOI that we just thought would be nice to do, but uh, did not actually improve the numbers. So very good points all around. What's next? What's next for you and your team? Uh, where do you go from here in terms of expansion? Yeah. Well, you want that property management company, right? Like, because usually you get the pushback. Like, if a property management gives you pushback, ah, we'll just come when you take over the property. Like, just let us know what day we're closing. We'll come out there, right? Or you try to ask them, like, what you know, what's your average cost per unit, right? Like, where you see, see the expenses unit or others, and they're not going to be able to give you constant feedback. It just shows how dialed are they into the actual process, right? You know, we focus on just looking at one acquisition per quarter, right? That's our goal, right? So we say that we're patiently aggressive, meaning that we're just going to do the work, but we're not going to go and just do a deal to do a deal. So that sometimes occurs that, you know, maybe we'll do a deal a quarter, maybe it might not be a deal for a couple quarters and we'll do, you know, maybe three at the end of the year, but we keep the routine, keep the process within in-house to continue to push forward on that plan. 
So that's allowed us to do a lot more dialed in approach um, here locally. I'm in Tennessee now, but I was, of course, in New Jersey. When I was in New Jersey, we stood back from some of the things that we have some more experience in, some of the other construction sides of it. So we have a couple of development projects in front of us here locally. So a lot of stuff here in our backyard. So we will do stuff like that here in our backyard, but still keep our exposure to these other markets where we're just simply going into repositioning multifamily. How do you think the rest of 2023 is going to play out? You know, during COVID, we had this big period of just uncertainty, right? Especially, you know, that March, those first few months, right? And the uncertainty was until everybody got used to the uncertainty. And it's hard to say that, but then people got like used to COVID. So then banks settled down. Right now, we're, we're still in this point where we just keep having these wild cards that just keep happening, right? So bank drops and all these things that just keep going out. You know, like you can name 10 that's happened in the last two years, right? So we are still going to have be in a moment of flux until the uncertainty can become normalized and banks can start getting their hands around things, right? Because if you talk to a lot of different banks, every bank's got a different opinion of where it goes. And usually with a lot of uncertainty, especially with the action of the Fed even yesterday here, is that there's still... Potentially, we're going more, we're going less, maybe we'll stop, maybe we'll go, right? There's there's not a clear path forward. And that leads for a lot of uncertainty on how everybody's going to react to this approach. So I think we're still going to see turmoil for a lot of runs. I hope we get to this end of this year and we'll start seeing that flatline approach and then see decreases into uh, 2024 on interest rates. But, you know, I don't have the crystal ball. But in that approach here, you have to look at longer term plays, right? Having the, the maximum approach, you look at a, you know, rolling 10 year average multifamily 9.8% return, right? On average, going back and forth forecasting. So you can look at long-term approaches and make sure that you have the right debt in place. So we've spent a lot of time over the last six and 12 months talking to a lot of different banks because your ability to put on the right debt right now gives you the maximum, of course, opportunity in the future, right? So we're not taking on a lot of uh, debt that has uh, very prohibitive prepayment penalties, right? We're taking on projects will work with banks, right? Where we may not get the best term today, right? So maybe we're paying another point on interest, uh, but we'll have really no exit penalty, and but it might be a five-year term and a 25-year amortization, right? Compared to if we did go Fannie and Freddie and we're locked in. And if the market reacts in a different way, we'll be locked in for long term. So we're trying to do that, set our projects up where we can have the right debt in place. So in six months, if things change, we can react differently. Or if it's 12 months or 18 months, we can have that option to make a choice that's going to fit the business plan. How has the market uncertainty impacted your acquisition efforts? You know, we have not been doing a lot of large syndications in the last six months. We've been doing a lot of projects. So we closed on a project here that was uh, one that we just brought in-house, a 44 unit here that we can manage a lot more things that are selective. And we've been finding a lot more value in the smaller opportunities right now. So we just did this 44 unit and a 29 unit. We're both on, on a multifamily, but then we've been doing storage opportunities that we've been having under us that are 63 or 52 unit storage units that we can have more intimate appeal in our backyard because the market reacts in a way that it's not the overall country right? Like we're like recession. And it's not like everybody in every market is in a recession, right? We see some markets that, you know, Long Island is going to react differently than Nashville. It's going to react differently than Indiana. It's going to react differently than Wyoming. So the more intimate you can be with your market, the better attuned you can be to making decisions that will fit your business plan. Yeah, that's so true. I, I remember at one point, this is many years ago, where I learned about real estate being very localized. I was looking at the DC market, like Washington DC in 2008, 2009, and it did not crash like all the other markets did. I think it was like relatively flat or it was just down just a little bit. 
But it just goes to show that, you know, everything could be burning around you, but your local market might actually be fine or whatever markets that you're investing in might actually be fine. So it's a good point. You know, you know, it's that one thing is that the quote unquote neighborhood, the neighborhood also matters too. And the more you can be, because I'll see people jump into a lot of markets and, and it's hard to, hard to do that, you know, just because you're exposed where maybe you just don't know where the good schools are. You don't know where the path of progress is going. And so you can be in your market, like even in Long Island, right? Once I'm, I'm sure, you know, Babylon, you're like, okay, I'm pretty dialed in, but maybe, you know, hundred miles away. You're like, I just kind of don't know where I am. Right. So that's your same market. Though. I'm in Long Island, right? It could be the same thing, like in Louisville, like, oh, I'm in Louisville, but I'm what the West side or the East side. It's two different worlds. Yeah. Hundred percent. Now we've spoken to a few investors who are kind of like you. They're dialing back on the acquisitions, and they say that they're focusing more on the operations, trying to increase that operational excellence. What is one thing that somebody listening to this podcast could do to increase their operational excellence? Like, what do you feel like is something that's sometimes a blind spot that people maybe overlook in good times? That if they really want to, you know peel back the curtain and dig into it, they should focus on. You want to understand if you had to take over this property today from the property management company, like what that entails, like what are they doing in the day-to-day here to make sure that you have the right people in place? Because you might not have enough employees on the on the site. You might have too many employees on the site. So understanding that detail and just truly understanding the operations of your property. If you're not understanding what's the cost to run your property, then you're missing that biggest piece right there. Because you can go up and down you know, on income, right? So add more, charge more, charge less, right? But for this, certain things are going to cost a certain thing. And you're either going to run it right, it's going to cost a certain thing, or you're, or you're going to you know, skip a lot of things. The property's not going to run well, but you're, you're going to lose performance. So if the property's going to operationally run right, what does it cost? This might be a naive question because I personally don't own any 100-unit deals. But mm-hmm. would there ever be... A situation where you would move in and self-manage the property to save on property management costs? Or is that just like the opportunity cost of doing that is just way too high? No. If it's a good property manager, right? Sometimes it's, it's saving a dollar today to miss the value in the future, right? So we've taken over the smaller properties because we found that we were spending so much time asset managing the, the property manager that in the meantime, we're actually spending less time just doing it correctly. Right. And sometimes that's the biggest piece. It's like, okay, we've done all this, right? Because you're just pushing into something that was outside. And usually with that middle tier properties, it's because you just don't have the on site. So they're, they're running a bunch of different things. And as, as property management companies on smaller properties, single family duplexes and stuff, they need to do that on volume. So they're probably just running to the loudest, you know, at the moment. And we want to be able to go in there and find the most value by being able to manage those properties in house. And that's given us that opportunity. Awesome. So, this has been an awesome episode on asset management and is also some things that people want to keep an eye out if they want to operate their properties more efficiently, they want to manage their property managers better, and maybe uh, some insights on when someone needs to actually remove their property manager and either replace them or take it over themselves and kind of go from there. If our listeners kind of want to learn more about you, what you have going on, I know you, you also coach people on how to run a syndication business. Where can they learn more about you? Sure. So yeah, appreciate you guys having me on. So yourusiholdings.com, you can find everything from us about, you know, what we're currently working on, what we've worked on in the past, you know, more about our team, our process, 
find everything about us there, send us an email. We'd be happy to talk to you, whether it's just about your growth or even on investment side. Um, we have seven figure multifamily. It's a mastermind teaching people to buy multifamily. So not all syndication, you know, it could just be in any method that you want. We have a couple of valuable partners who have done deals in a lot of ways here. But with that, again, it's focus, right? We find that when people come in, they want to buy properties everywhere, right? Oh, well, I'm here and everything just looks greener. But as soon as you can dial it in, like, let's pick one market. Well, I'll get less opportunities. Well, no, you'll get the right opportunities. You'll notice them quicker, right? Because I'd rather look at five deals and find one right deal than look at 200. And by the time I figure out the good deal, someone else has gotten to it before me. It's really focus, concentration, and having that discipline to do that, that usually leads us to the outcome that we want. That's great insight. That's really good advice. I think a lot of people should take that out there because a lot of people with the shiny object syndrome, I know I come down with every once in a while, instead mm-hmm. of going and looking at six different markets, just pick one market, do your due diligence, make sure that's the market for you. And then just focus in, dial in on what types of properties you're looking for. And then to your point, when you find that diamond in the rough, you'll be able to recognize that it's a diamond and not just another rock in the sea of multifamily properties, if you will. So Plus you can learn the steps once, right? Because if you're in five different markets and you're starting out, you have to learn it five times across five markets where you could just figure it all out once. So if you go to another market, because you figured out already, you can do it 10 times quicker when you get to that next market, instead of just trying to do it in five markets and have it take it five times longer. All right. That's excellent advice. So we're going to go ahead and drop all that information into the show notes for anybody who's listening, who wants to learn more about Jason, his team and, and all that good stuff. Jason, uh, thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been, been an awesome episode. Excited to put it out there. Thank you guys. Appreciate having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.